Welcome to The Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys. This is a podcast from CBS News, and I am your host. The show is a breakout from the CBS News Weekend Roundup, and every week we discuss issues including gender and disability. This week, we're looking back 20 years ago at the trauma and illness suffered by those in Lower Manhattan after the September 11th terror attacks. Shock and horror as planes slammed into the twin towers of the World Trade Center and the realization. And then the fall. (laughs) Nearly 3,000 people died that day aboard Flight 93 at the Pentagon and in New York City. Health advocate Lila Nordstrom was a senior at Stuyvesant High School at the time. It's just three blocks from ground zero, and she tells me she was in class when the World Trade Center attack began. That conversation after this short break. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. On the morning of 9-11, I was in an architecture class um, on the 10th floor of Stuyvesant High School. Stuyvesant is about three blocks from the World Trade Center. And we used to, before Battery Park City got fully developed, have a direct view of all of downtown. So the World Trade Center and the Statue of Liberty. And so I was in the classroom with probably the best view of downtown in the entire building. And we had been sitting there learning to draw straight lines or something like that. You know, we were learning a hand drafting technique um, and we we heard this huge explosion and felt the entire building shake. And we turned around and just a huge fireball was engulfing the top of the World Trade Center. And interestingly, you know, Stuyvesant had moved to that building just before the bombing in 93. And so my teacher had been there at that time and he was like, There's no way they're going to evacuate us. They didn't evacuate us in 93. So I'm just going to keep teaching. So we taught for, you know, the first hour (laughs) of this, of this crazy event, the second plane hit and he was still teaching. And I think, wow, it wasn't until, you know, there were a couple of things that happened. One is that every classroom around us turned on their televisions. And so people would run in and deliver us news as we were sitting there still doing class. And then um, the second thing was that, you know, the first tower fell And then suddenly a big dust cloud was rushing towards our building. And that was kind of when things fell apart. So, you know, we were hearing like crying in the hallways and we were hearing people screaming. We weren't really sure where any of it was coming from. The 10th floor at Stuyvesant was very isolated. And so it was weird to hear anything in the hallway there. Finally, you know, they started to make announcements, but they weren't really sure if we were going to evacuate or not. And so the announcements sounded very unsure. And it seemed like in general, no adult knew what was going to happen or what to do. So finally, they told us, go to your homerooms, as if a major class change in the middle of a dust cloud over enveloping the building was a brilliant idea. Um, I decided that instead of going to my homeroom, 
I was going to go to the nurse's office because I knew that to be close to the exit that was farthest from the World Trade Center. And so the, the likely exit that we would be using to evacuate. And I, I'm, I've been an asthmatic my entire life. I could, I would just like watching an asthma attack roll towards me. And so I was just like, I need to stay as far away from this dust cloud as possible. And I need to also get out of this building as quickly as possible. Finally, they gave us evacuation orders after I went to the nurse's office and I was one of the first kids out of the building, but um, the second tower started to fall like the moment I set foot onto pavement. And so I ended up exiting into a stampede. So I tried to run, but like I said, I was asthmatic. I did not get very far. Um, I finally kind of pulled off to the side because I got an asthma attack probably within a hundred feet of the exit of the school. Luckily, I never got enveloped by the dust cloud. Um, and then I, I sort of, on the side note, I found a teacher who I'd had, you know, like a class with the year before or something like that. We didn't know each other very well, but we at least recognized each other. And we started walking uptown together and kind of accumulating students along the way, which is what a lot of teachers did that day. A lot of them ended up taking home, you know, a group of 10 students or something like that, because Unlike a lot of the other schools downtown, um, we were just old enough that they didn't evacuate us by class. They just told us to run. So the other schools, I think, evacuated a little sooner than us, but also, you know, they were elementary schools because there are a lot of schools on that corner. And they, they, because of that, had a meeting spot, but they didn't give us a meeting spot at Stuyvesant. They just told us to run north. And so we all just... 3,000 of us exited and ran north by ourselves. So I finally found a friend who invited me to her house for the night because I grew up in Chelsea and we had heard before we left that there were other planes in the air, that other buildings were going to be hit. And I grew up, you know, very close to the Empire State Building. And I just thought, like, I'm not going to go through this a second time today. So I decided to go to Queens with her. So we walked to Queens. (laughs) We walked like 10 miles. Um, across the 59th Street Bridge, and her um, her parents very graciously took me in that night and coordinated with my parents to make sure I could get home the next day. Um, and then, you know, I met my parents up near Hunter College the next day, and we walked downtown together. Wow, that is a simply terrifying story. And we're going to talk more about your health advocacy, but I also want to ask you, you said you were near elementary schools. What were those kids yeah. doing? So Stuyvesant is on a corner that has BMCC and then two elementary schools, PS89 and PS234. As far as I know, they evacuated to actual meeting points so that the parents could actually find their kids. Um, They were evacuated by class, but I can't imagine being responsible for evacuating like a class of kindergartners. Um, I've, I've spoken to kids, you know, who went to those schools and, a lot of their memories are a little fuzzier because they were so much younger than we were. And so this just was like a sort of mixed up traumatic experience for them. I would say the one distinction is that because those were neighborhood schools, most of those kids lived in the neighborhood. So they ended up having to go home that night to the neighborhood anyway. Whereas at Stuyvesant, most of us come from outside the neighborhood, you know, people travel huge distances to get to Stuyvesant every day. And so people went home to their, you know, to other communities. And a lot of those communities weren't, you know, in the direct sort of experiencing the direct aftermath of 9-11. Whereas I can't imagine what it would have been to be an elementary student at that time. And then to have to escape as this terrifying thing is happening. And then to just 
have to go home to downtown where it was like, you know, suffused with smoke and debris and dust and, you know, just wait. I know that you have been an advocate for students because you went back to school really quickly after that when there was still debris and people with guns along West Side Highway and all of that. And then you said you noticed that your classmates were getting sick. So you became an advocate. Talk to me a little bit about how that went. Sure. So there were kind of two layers to me realizing that we were going to get sick in the long term. We went back at Stuyvesant on October 9th, which is months before any other school in the area returned, with the exception of BMCC. Some of the colleges returned way too early as well. Um, And, you know, ultimately, it turned out all the schools (laughs) returned way too early. But we returned before any of the fires had been put out at Ground Zero. They were still search and rescue operations going on. And our school had been used as a command center for the uh, rescue effort before we got back. And so, you know, the, the building had had people coming in and out from the pile for weeks. And then when we got back, we were told it had been adequately cleaned, but we later found out that they had basically mopped it. They hadn't cleaned out the air system at all. And then they also put the barge where they were bringing all the debris from the site to right next to our school. So all day trucks filled with uncovered debris were passing by our school building and dumping that debris right next to our air intake system. So not only was the neighborhood suffused with smoke and not only were, you know, kids uh, already reporting things like headaches and nosebleeds and breathing issues. And at the time, you know, there's reporting in the New York Times about these complaints coming from Stuyvesant. At the time, we were told, and this is also recorded in the Times, that these would be temporary and there would be no long-term health impacts. I, in retrospect, can't believe that anyone said that because there were so obviously going to be long-term long-term health impacts. A, a bunch of, you know, 16-year-olds don't spontaneously develop bloody noses without there being some kind of long-term health impact after that. But um, the 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 rescue effort continued to happen all around us. We were there for eight months of this operation. Um, they didn't clean the air system in our school until after we had left for the year. So that was not until the summer of 2002. They did not replace any of the um, upholstery in the theater, which was, you know, which had carpeted, it was carpeted and it had fabric seats. They replaced the carpeting in 2002. They didn't replace the seats until 2014. Um, And so we were in a contaminated building for that entire time. So I, as someone who was asthmatic, left that year knowing that this had not been good for my asthma. And I think you know, there were a lot of public officials telling us, don't worry about this. This is safe. Everything's fine. They haven't shown any proof that anything's dangerous. They later found that proof later in the year. Um, But my pulmonologist at the time lived in Battery Park City and was an alumni of Stuyvesant, alumnus of Stuyvesant. Um, And he said to me, look, I don't know what to tell you. You should not be down there. But I also know you can't leave Stuyvesant in your senior year. I know how critical this opportunity is to people. I know how important it is to people, you know, who attend Stuyvesant to finish there. You know, it's a huge opportunity to go to a school like Stuyvesant. It's not something that you just throw away without thinking. So um, he said, I understand why you're staying. I just, you should know that you shouldn't be down there. So I had that kind of rattling around in my head for years. And, you know, as we heard the EPA admit that they had misled the people of, you know, lower Manhattan about the safety of the air. Um, And then in 2006, as we heard that, a police officer who had been, you know, part of the rescue effort had died of illness that he had developed from that 
operation. So from working at the site, not on the day itself, but from working the site. That was James Adroga, who the later um, legislation would be named after. But that news broke just as I was about to graduate from college and just as I attended the seminar at my school about what you were supposed to do about benefits when you graduate, because this was before the Affordable Care Act. It's before you could stay on your parents' plan until you were 26. So the year that we learned that, you know, that people were going to die of their exposures downtown, I learned that I would not be able to afford health insurance after spring of, you know, 2006. And so that's really what got me activated is that kind of parallel moment where I thought, okay, they've now shown that these minor illnesses and irritations we were experiencing in the direct aftermath of the attacks may have serious long-term consequences for us. And at this exact moment, I am also learning that there will be no protection for me. And that just doesn't seem fair because I was not, I was a minor on 9-11. I did not get to choose whether or not to go back to Stuyvesant. That was not a decision I had any agency to make. And if the, you know, if, if the, the powers that be, whether that be the city, the federal government, whether that be all of them decided on my behalf that my health was worth risking in the aftermath of this attack, then they also should protect that health now that we know that it's going to have, you know, that that, that experience is going to have long term consequences. So, so Lola, is that so? Yeah. Uh, so is that how and forgive me for jumping in? No, no, go ahead. But so is that how you ended up starting Sty Health? Yes. So that's how I ended up starting Sty Health. I sent a petition out and asked a bunch of my friends if they would be willing to sign it. And they very enthusiastically agreed. I think a lot of people were really concerned about this at the time as this news was kind of percolating in the, uh, in, the in the media. And so I got about 150 signatures very quickly. And then I started going to, um, my mother was very active in the anti-war movement. So she would go to a lot of anti-war rallies and things. And I started going to those rallies with her so that I could try to tell politicians that I was sending this petition to their office. And, um, and that's how the whole thing started. Um, in addition to your advocacy for the children who've been affected by all of this, I know you also have some things to say about how women have not been as much a part of the conversation about everything mm -hmm. from health issues to the ongoing mental effects of 9-11. And although I know that women like Monica Eichen and others, you know, ran some of the advocacy organizations, but women from the community have not been as much part of that. Talk to me about how you got involved with that. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that we continue to face as a community, because the survivor community is about three or four times the size of the responder community. So it's a really huge community. And it's a community that, unlike the responder community, is half women. Um, and a lot of the uh, conditions for seeking treatment under the World Trade Center Health Program, which is the federal health program that got set up for us um, under the Zadroga Act, are based on research that was done exclusively on survivors, which means it's research that was done exclusively on male populations. And it means that there's really uneven coverage for women's health conditions. So, for example, cervical cancer is covered, but uterine cancer is not. Um, there is no coverage for autoimmune issues aside from sarcoidosis, which I always have a hard time saying. Um, that's because that was something that they were seeing in responders. But we get reports all the time of people suffering from autoimmune issues. There's a, you know, there's a huge body of evidence that those could be linked to the kinds of chemicals that we were exposed to after 9-11. But there's no coverage for them under the program because there's not sufficient research on the population to prove that they're connected. These are all conditions we expect to be added in the future, which is part of what makes it so frustrating because people are suffering from them right now. 
you know, I served for several terms on the Science and Technical Advisory Committee for the World Trade Center Health Program. The issue of autoimmune disorders got brought up to us every single time that we met, and it never got, you know, it, it never got accepted by the administrator. It never got covered by the program. So there is a huge gap between the kinds of care that's that are available to women and also to children because there's very little developmental health research and available to men inside of the program that we have. That has to do, I think, with the uh, the way that we approached, you know, granting care to this community. We we definitely saw the community riding the coattails of first responders um, in in order to get any care at all. I mean, if you think about the number of communities that face disaster that don't get any federal health program at all. I'm definitely aware that we're incredibly lucky. Um, but I also think that, you know, the way that the we see in the broader medical community, we see research all the time that's done exclusively on men. And we find that women have, you know, side effects from from uh, medications or other, you know, complications because no one researched how things, how medical interventions would affect them. Um, we're seeing that on a micro scale in this program. And, you know, we're talking about a population that is, hundreds of thousands of people. We're not talking about a small group of people. And, you know, as, as we as we think about how to address the ongoing health needs of the survivor community, we also need to be thinking about what it is that would affect you uniquely as a child, you know, with those exposures, because the developmental health um, complications that we're likely to see have been barely researched at all. Um, and so, you know, in some sense, we're providing really uneven care because there was this notion that 9-11 is a, the 9-11 health story is about men and it's actually about everyone. I want to ask you about COVID because you have said that yeah. some of the lessons that were not learned from September 11th are going to end up affecting the people that are now dealing with COVID. And especially as we know that some of the firefighters and others who have been sickened by what by the after effects of 9-11 are now dying of COVID. Yeah, I think, I mean, for sure, being a 9-11 survivor or responder puts you at elevated risk for COVID-related complications. But I'm also seeing us repeat a lot of the same mistakes that were made in terms of community exposure after 9-11. You know, we, we often rushed kids back into schools or we continued to speak like, you know, kids craved normalcy, so they had to go back quickly. And I totally understand that there were, you know, childcare complications, that there were issues with, you know, mental health when it came to young, young people. And, and I know that because I experienced those things as well when, you know, when this happened to me after 9-11. But I think, you know, a lot of the time, we use children as props in the aftermath of major disasters without thinking about what wrong choices will mean to their future. So we are a country that does not provide very accessible or affordable healthcare to anyone. So when you subject a child to a risk that will have ongoing complications for them, and this is the same for adults as well, um, then you are not just asking them to live potentially with long-term health complications. You're asking them to live with long-term financial complications as well. You're asking them to live with risks that will affect every aspect of their life and being. You're not asking them to simply, you know, undertake a risk that can be controlled with medical interventions because a lot of people don't have access to medical interventions in this country. So I think, you know, a lot of the uh, messaging that we saw rushing things to open, rushing people back to school, rushing people back into their workplaces after COVID was really reminiscent of what we saw after 9-11 when there was this sense that, you know, downtown had to return to work and school and homes 
because we needed to show the terrorists that we weren't going to be taken down by them. And, you know, it was it was all sort of this larger political messaging that we were all, you know, exposed because of. And I saw the exact same thing happening during COVID. And especially in the case of children, I wish that we would think about what the long term risks kids are going, you know, what the long term possible risks were going to be to those children and and how we could instead of acting to, you know, to, to prioritize the economy and to prioritize messaging, how we could act to prioritize their long-term health and how we could act to prioritize all of our long-term health, because it has been so much more complicated to get help after the fact than it would have been to have help in the first place. You know, we're, it's not like we're offering everybody a, a, a free healthcare program in the aftermath of COVID if they agree to go to work. We're asking them to undertake that risk personally. And that's the same thing that happened to us after 9-11. And it's why I understand it to be such a grave risk. You know, the the battle to have access to healthcare at all has been the defining battle of my adult life. I started worrying about affording health insurance when I was 22 years old, and I have never stopped. I I don't wish that fate onto anyone, but I'm also chronically ill, so I've had to you know I've had to live that way. I think we're now subjecting an entire generation to living that way, and that's incredibly unfair. I want to ask you one last question. It is. As we, well, it's the 20th anniversary of that terrible day. And you just said that you have been chronically ill since then. You have been advocating for health care and fighting for children. But I want to know, how are you doing personally? Is this a hard year for you or is it the same? This is an incredibly hard year, I think, for all of us, maybe not just for me. I think, you know, the 20th anniversary kind of snuck up on me because, you know, I've been so embroiled in trying to survive COVID and trying to survive this weird era that we live in now. It's also an interesting bookend to the experience on 9-11 where it feels like now we're in a new disaster era. And so maybe all of the like solemn commemoration of 9-11 is about to transform into something else. And I actually think that's probably a good thing. I think the one thing that I've been thinking about a lot in this anniversary in particular is the way that we tend on the 9-11 anniversary to be incredibly rear-facing, to, you know, to constantly sort of like hashtag never forget, to, to talk a lot about this one singular day in time and its impact. And I, of course, see why that's important, but I also wish that we would use it as an opportunity to be a little bit more forward thinking about what we need to do to prevent communities from going through what the 9-11 community went through. I think it's a good day to revisit the missteps that were made that put us in harm's way. I think it's a good day to think about what kind of proactive policy could prevent even, you know, disasters we can't avoid from having long-term impacts on people the way that the 9-11, you know, community has had these long-term health impacts. And so I'm hoping that from, you know, especially because we're in a new disaster era right now, but also because I think it's important at some point to transform a a memorialization like we have, you know, like we have every year for 9-11 into something productive. Um, I really hope that we can use this year to think, okay, what are the lessons that we learned on 9-11? What shouldn't, you know, we do in the aftermath of of a disaster? How can we protect people moving forward? And what are the policies that could protect people without them having to ask for the help. Because, you know, we spent 20 years asking for help. I spent 20 years asking for help basically so that I could afford Advair, which is a drug that is easily available and affordable in most other countries um, and is incredibly expensive here and can really break the bank if you're 22 and don't have, you know, not making very much money. 
Um, the fact that instead of asking for, you know, research, instead of asking for specialized care, I was spending 20 years asking for basic help that is available in almost every other country to every citizen is, I think, what keeps me up at night. And I hope we can figure out a way to not ask COVID victims to do the same thing. That's Lila Nordstrom, author of Some Kids Left Behind and founder of the advocacy group Sty Health. Thanks so much for joining us. Also, thanks to Ashley Armstrong for her production assistance. Like what you hear? Come back for more. There will be new episodes of Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys every Monday. Follow the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Allison Keys, CBS News. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.